Like, it's so funny, like, how um, eminently reasonable you guys are. Like, if you want, like, the hot take in this, it's like, creating is a scam, down with creating. The other side of it is like, you know, it's got by the best trade you can, because those are the cards in the Pareto and blah, 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 blah. Whereas, like, our our overall assessment is so, like, creating is helpful. It's one piece of a, of, a, of a panoply of information that you have access to to make a decision about how you evaluate a card. Eminently reasonable and very glad that um, we share it. It's no accident that we got our tens of viewers here tuning in with us with, for our reasonable takes on the hobby. <laughs> this is Rough Cuts, a conversation among friends about the vintage sports card hobby. I'm Jonathan, Sports Cards and Sunsets, here with my collector buddies Matthew, 1956 Topps guy, and Nate in Cardboard Veritas, as well as everyone joining us on the Instagram live chat this evening, February 4th, 2024. All right, yeah, so uh, we are kicking off here, and it's uh, 2-4-24, which uh, fittingly has been named Willie Mays Day by the mayor of San Francisco, so... Uh, we definitely have to shout that out. And I'm sure Willie will come up at least a couple times here as, as we talk today. Uh, it's, uh, you know, as we were just chatting about here beforehand, been, been a minute since we, we did one of these and certainly excited and happy to be back on. Uh, I think we have a, a good program lined up tonight. We uh, were planning to start with some uh, kind of personal hobby stories or recaps, um, sort of what we've been up to for the last few weeks since the last time we were on. Uh, then we'll do uh, a vintage showcase um, where we show off, you know, some kind of cards we've been grooving on lately. Uh, and then we'll do our our uh, segment that we call Scuba Gear, where we um, plan to do a deep dive into either a particular set or or a card. Um, I think maybe we'll leave that a mystery for the moment um, and and get to that one a little bit later. Uh, and then uh, I think the plan is to wrap up with a mail day and, and any closing thoughts that we have. So uh, we will progress through that. And, um, you know, be, before we do, you know, first of all, you know, thank you all to everyone who's joined us here on IG Live and to the folks who have encouraged us to to get back on and, and make another episode. We always appreciate it. Um, and looking forward to to a good fun time tonight. And as always, you know, uh, let us know of any questions or comments. That certainly is the rocket fuel for for our conversation and, you know, makes makes it a lot more dynamic and, and fun for us, too. So, um, fellas, anything else before we jump in? Nah, good, good intro. Let's let's right. jump in. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Sounds good. So, um, Matthew, do you maybe want to start off and talk a little bit about um, your some of your experiences or particular th things you want to hit on over the last couple months? Sure. So, yeah. So let's see. The last time we did this, I think it was just before Christmas, maybe a week before um, the 24th. And so since then, I think my hobby, my hobby life has been a little bit different than usual. Haven't been buying too many cards lately. Um, you know, I always think the end of the year is a great time to buy cards just because, you know, a lot of people are, saving their money for for gifts for other people and stuff like that but you know for for someone self-centered with money like me you know, <laughs> i'm also on the hunt for cards but you know i didn't really find too many but the major thing that happened to me was um just before christmas 
I bought a really nice 1949 Bowman Yogi Berra off of eBay. That was a PSA six. It was a card that was, um, it was listed with a buy it now or best offer made a best offer offer was accepted. I got the card was super jazzed. Um, you know, I think all four, all, all of us in our little group and all three of us here really love that, that 1949 Bowman Yogi a lot like that's mm-hmm. one of our favorite cards. You know, it's got the strong red background. Um, and so I was super excited to get this one in. It, the eye appeal looked amazing. And um, like right before Christmas or right after Christmas, I I got the Yogi. I put it in my Christmas tree and I took a picture of it and like put it on Instagram as like like a little cool card that I got kind of thing, you know, like we like to do. And um, after I posted it, I got a couple messages from I got messages from two different people who told me that that particular yogi was in fact like stolen property from somebody else. And so, you know, that in the messages that I got were kind of like, um, I'm sorry to have to to tell you this, but that, that card was stolen. Um, and I remember being like, you know, I was confused about what to do about that fact. And I was thinking, I also just didn't want to assume that like people telling me, things on the internet who, who I didn't know were, were, you know, um, being truthful. So it was kind of like one of those things of like, okay, well, what do I do now kind of situations? Right. Cause obviously like, I think nobody wants to hold on to a card that is rightfully somebody else's like that. That's not cool. Right. Um, and of course I liked the card, but I didn't want to hold on to it. If, if it was really stolen. So, um, I eventually got like from the people that contacted me, I was able to get the name of the, the kind of the person who, who, who claimed to be the rightful owner of the car. Right. Um, and, and that, I guess right there is kind of a shout out to the power of the Instagram community of like kind of watching out for other collectors and, and kind of not just telling me the car was stolen, but yeah, there's an example of it. Nice, beautiful example, Nate, of this card. Um, you know, and I, I, I freaking love this card. So I was like, oh crap, what do I do? I eventually got in contact with the the rightful owner. And basically like, I kind of just tried to, at the very beginning and tried to make sure like everything I was doing was like in writing. Right. Um, so I like emailed, um, emailed the guy, asked him like what the situation was and if he could provide me like documentation, uh, pertaining to the fact that, that the card was stolen. Um, and, and he did kind of, he sent me a copy of the, the police report and he sent me the name and information of the detective that, that he had reported the, the stolen item from. Um, it also turned out that I think a lot of us think that like cards are almost always stolen, like at shows, like that this poor guy had his card stolen when it was, he had it set out at a show. But in fact, it was part of his personal collection. And I think he had had some like, um, repair work done in his home on his um his heating and air conditioning system and the the heating and air man the the i guess the guy who came to give him some estimate like he stole some cards at the point of the time of giving the estimate that the owner didn't find out about only later um you know he actually books the guy for the job the guy comes back does the job but steals a bunch more cards and um so this guy had a near a complete set of 1949 Bowman. I think it, he said that he was like number six on the PSA registry. So all like pretty high grade cards. He did tell me that like the really expensive cards from the set, you know, like the Jackie 
the Satch, the Doby, the Campy. He had them all in a separate place, but the Yogi is one of the nicer cards that happened to get stolen. So then I'm like, okay, now I know that, that I know this card is stolen. This seems like a legitimate guy. Like, like, what do I do now? You know, obviously like I would like to make myself whole. I bought this card. I'd like to get my money back. Um, and so then, um, I contacted eBay who I bought it through and, and they told me, so I called them cause I, you know, there's not an option to say like, Hey, item stolen, but what do I do? Right. So I called them and they said that I should like request a refund. Um, and then that would kind of get the ball rolling. And so you make this request, right. And now with eBay's authentication procedure, it kind of goes through this weird process where when you make a request to return a card that that was expensive enough to go to the through the um through the authentication process they basically like kick it back to the authenticators and the authenticator just verifies oh cool the authenticator just verifies that the, that they authenticated the card as being authentic right so then so then like 2 days later my my refund claim gets rejected because the authenticator said the, the card was authentic and it's like okay yeah that's fine. The card's authentic, but that's not my problem. The card was freaking stolen. Like you got to help me out here. So then I call him back. You know, I have to get through like a few layers of per number one, like eBay kinds of hides their, their customer service number, blah, blah, blah. you got to fight through this stuff. Eventually I started talking to like a real human being who worked in the authentication area. Um, and then he told me to like submit the documentation and take a bunch of pictures of the card. So I submitted to them like the the police report number, blah, 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 blah. Um, and eventually, and, and so after I did that, is basically what I had to do was um, was appeal the rejection of the refund and then submit this documentation. So then once I did that, then a few days go by and then actually they refunded me all of my money. And then they requested that I um, kind of give bad feedback to the seller to say that, hey, this seller is selling stolen items. So I think to try to prevent other people from buying stuff, because he still had things that were listed. Um, and then so now at this point, you know, I'm whole, I've got my money back, but now I'm like, how do I get the car back to the guy? So I asked eBay, eBay's like, they don't want anything to do with it at this point, right? Because it's like a stolen item. They don't want it in their possession at all. So um, at that point, it was, I actually called the detective who was working the case. And then arranged, he basically asked me to send the card directly to the original owner. And so uh, um, I sent the card to the guy and and apparently they're like um, at the point of like charging this guy with stealing these cards. I think a noteworthy thing is that when you when you buy a card off of eBay and it goes through the authentication process, um, when you receive the package from eBay, the address that it's sent from is like some eBay authentication office, but the name is the name of the seller, like their actual name name. Hmm. And um, that actually, that name matched the the guy who who stole it. It wasn't like sent, sent through a fence, so that was kind of like the box itself was like evidence that this guy had had stolen this card, had sold it. Um, and so, sadly, I, I lost my 1949 Yogi that I was really uh, keen on. But at the same time, it kind of ended up with the with the rightful owner, which it, which is great. Um, after some shenanigans. And I guess it, it just goes to show that like, if I had done this deal privately, right, I think it would have been challenging for 
be to get all of my money back. I'm assuming in that situation, it probably would have been like, maybe I could get half my money back or something like that, depending on um, the niceness of the various people in the train that had, had purchased this card. But at least going through eBay in this situation actually made me feel like kind of good that I was able to get my money back. The card ended back up with its rightful owner. Um, and I guess the message here is that, you know, there are, you know, eBay, while being a big company, can at least absorb some of these costs of, of dealing in stolen items. Um, and I guess I would also encourage people to, like, A, if your card gets stolen, you need to report it to the police department so that you have, like, a written record that you, your items were, in fact, stolen. Because anyone who's going to try to get the card back to you is going to need that information. Um and I guess I would also just give a shout out to the Instagram community for alerting me that the card was in fact stolen. And then that kicked off this, uh, this series of events. So it was kind of like good news story, bad news story, but just something to watch out for. My first experience ever having a stolen card. So kind of crazy. Wow. Yeah, yeah it really is. Um, I, I have a ton of thoughts on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sure. like a million thoughts for me. Yeah, such an interesting story. And, and I knew part of it, but not all the details. But, you know, f first of all, you know, good, certainly that you, you know, made the effort and, you know, had had the inclination to do the right thing and make sure that the card got back to its rightful owner. You know, that's obviously the starting point. And, you know, number two, like, tough for you, right? Like, it feels so good to get a new card that you're excited about and then have that turn into like an ordeal, an administrative ordeal for you to have to, you know, like try to figure out and then, you know, try to get made whole. Fortunately, you were made whole, but you know, that's, that's a tough thing. And then, um, I'd say I'm really happy that the guy got caught and is being charged. I feel like often hobby frauds and crimes go, you know, unsolved or no one actually ends up paying the price that they should for committing those crimes in the hobby. So I'm glad to hear about that element of the outcome. Um, and then, you know, I think about like kind of personal safety and security of cards, you know, certainly that that's the kind of story that makes us all really nervous. And, you know, I keep a lot of my cards in, in a vault, but otherwise, you know, really, you know, th the alarms and the security cameras and the safes and all that stuff. Like, you know, I think it's a good reminder to everyone to make sure that they're using all really, you know, important security precautions, including, you know, in that, certainly in that situation where you have guests in your house that you don't know well. So, um, I, I'd say for a, a really rough outcome, it sounds, I mean, hopefully he'll continue to get more of the cards back. It sounds like, a, I mean, he, the owner of these cards might not agree, but at least there's a lot of good in, you know, mixed into the outcome. Yeah. So, yeah. To me, one of the biggest bummers of the story is just how much work you had to put in to do the right thing. Cause you could have just totally ignored it and kept the card, frankly. Um, the, the fact that you were willing to jump through all those hoops, you know, that, that's a lot of work to not even get your card. But the, the, yeah, I think the payoff was, it sounds like maybe the bad guy is going to get caught, you know, which is um, which is a better thing for the hobby. Uh, what, another thing that occurred to me is it's not just a a tale of collecting sports cards or, or baseball cards. In some ways, it's a tale of things that can happen when you're buying goods 
that have high value on a secondary market, you know, and I, I imagine there's a bunch of different secondary market where these kinds of things happen. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, yeah, we're, we're all participating in hobby where people think, oh, that that might be worth a lot of money. I could sell it or something. So, yeah, we have to be we have to be cautious and we have to be aware of this stuff. Yeah. And helpful, helpful that, you know, the grading process does like serialize like the cards, right? It kind of makes them, a, gives them a unique identifier. Um, these guys found their way back in the internet. Uh, hey, Chris. <laughs> I thought uh, uh, Mookie asked earlier, did I talk to like, how was the guy like thankful for me, um, you know, having done it? He was, I mean, he was a super nice guy. He was just, he was super bummed out that, you know, he had this complete set that was now like scattered. I think a lot of the commons were stolen and kind of sold in bulk, which I think was going to be a lot harder to, to kind of track down. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it, you raise a good point, Nate. It's like, you definitely want to be mindful of, you know, you have these pretty expensive objects that aren't, that are pretty easy to like hide in a pocket basically. And um, yeah, you got to be mindful of when you let people in your house that, you know, are these items accessible easily and, and, and things like this. And, you know, even though it's super sad to have our cards away from us, you know, there's a certain amount of protection you get from from vaults and things. Like, I can't do that. But I feel like if I were to have my card stolen, it might that might make me reconsider it, right? Mm, yeah. 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 And, you know, what, one other thing, too. It's interesting what you said about eBay that, you know, that the name on the package, name of the seller. I, I wasn't aware. I thought maybe they were just like including random names for something. That <laughs> I really didn't. And often, actually, interestingly, for, for me recently, I've, I've had a decent number of female names, which kind of, you know, I'm, I know that we have a growing number of females in the hobby, but the, not a ton of vintage collectors, you know, be female. But uh, um, but that that's interesting to know. And, you know, related to that, um, really, it's amazing how common it is for people that do things like the guy that stole these cards to make a really stupid move like selling them on ebay and creating a really formal record of himself being the seller of an identifiable object like yeah crazy definitely not definitely not clever but yeah i mean it, it is it is quite a few hoops to jump through but it's like one of those things where i feel like you know whether you believe in karma or not or whatever it's kind of like a do the right thing. You never know when you're going to be on the other side of this kind of situation. And you'd hope that other people would do the same. I also feel like if I were to just be like, I'm keeping this card, I would have, you know, for me, a big part of um, my collection is sharing my collection. And it would be like, I'd have to like keep this card and essentially never show anyone it because, you know, it's got like this, this essentially this, this mark on it that you can't see, but it's there. Right. Right. And like, who has to live like that? I can't, I couldn't live like totally. that. Yeah. And, and, you know, the feeling we get looking at our cards is such an important part of it too. And like, every time you pull that card out, you're going to be thinking like, oh, you know, poor guy. Card. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. Um, Jonathan, how, how about you? Uh, what's, what's been top of mind for you over these last few weeks in the hobby? Yeah. So kind of like Matthew started coming into the new year, I almost always start out with a goal of, uh, how do, how do I enjoy the hobby while buying less? So that's definitely been kind of a focus for me. I, I think I bought two slapped uh, sports cards in the month of January, but there's a bunch of things. I, you know, it it felt like it was an active month for me. Um, and you know, ultimately, where this is going, I'm going to talk a little bit about my thoughts on grading 
I didn't expect to be sending out cards this month for grading, but um, you know, coming into the year, one thing I did that I always do is I think about what are some posts I want to do or series on Instagram and how do I start taking all the photos for that? So I've been doing a lot of um, groupings of cards, photos for a future series. And then when I was at home for the holidays, I say home about Ohio where I grew up, um, I, I noticed through several interactions that um, the people in my orbit are starting to get interested in this hobby. So the hobby is, gro- in my experience, the hobby is growing. Um, and it, it's hard for me to take credit. I, I think I'm more self-deprecating than evangelizing about my hobby. Um, but several people in my extended family have started sort of asking me questions and wanting to, um, uh, my brother-in-law and his son wanted to go to a card shop in Ohio. And, they were, and then we started ripping boxes, looking for CJ Stroud cards, who's popular there. And then he he got his brother involved in uh, wanting to pull out old Pokemon cards and send them into PSA. So I ended up while in Ohio helping a bunch of people do this big group submission to PSA, mostly Pokemon cards. And then when I came back to Salt Lake, um, two different uh, husbands of people who are in my wife's book club um, reached out and had heard that I was an expert on sports cards and wanted my opinion about looking at old cards they had and should they grade them. So I ended up helping a bunch of other people decide whether to send their Jerry Rice rookie in to PSA or SGC, and I, I ended up doing an SGC submission. Um, but it got me it got me thinking a lot about this. I haven't sent cards off to be um, graded for, I think, over a year. And this is something th- three, four years ago I was doing a ton of, two years ago even. Um, back then when I was sending them off, I was sort of wondering what I had, like, what, what grade am I going to get? I'm all excited and nervous about it. And it occurred to me in these recent ones that in some ways I don't care that much about the grade that comes back. And I know that sounds a a little bit like, come on, how can you say that? But, um, I mean, of, of course there's some amount of like, yeah, you know, you get a little bit of value pop with this or that. Um, but, but genuinely I, I now feel like, well, I know this card inside and out, you know, and, and the reason I'm sending it off is mostly because I want it to be encapsulated, not because I'm not sure, you know, what it is. Like I kind of, you, you know, if there's a crease, you know, if there's a rounded corner. Um, so I, I noticed that my own point of view on the value on the slab has been changing. Um, and then at the same time, and you, you guys, uh, we've all noticed this. I'm sure people who are listening in have noticed this at recent auctions, particularly heritage, there were all of these cards that the values were just going astronomical, like way above what you would expect for the grade. But it's because the card was beautiful. And there were other cards in high grade, but if it was off center and the and the uh, values were coming in really low. And w- But the combination of my experience about how I feel about sending cards in for grading and watching the market is making me think that we're in the middle of this shift. And I and I think the the hobby is starting to care a little bit less on the number of the slab. It's almost like we all realize that this card is a it's a five to a seven. You know, it's a like on a good day, it's a six. On a bad day, it's a 3.5. And we all sort of know that it's not a science, it's an opinion. And um, and I think the hobby in the market is taking notice and is sort of saying, like, yeah, we're we don't care as much about just the number on the slab. It's about how beautiful is the card. Now, the, the PSA set registry still has some sway. And I even participate in that in, in some ways. But um, it, it really just got me thinking. I, I, I think when we go a couple, I may 
maybe a decade out in the future, I think the numbers are going to matter even less on this labs because we will have seen more ebbs and flows of how the standards change. Um, I think some of my cards will benefit from this because they're beautiful for the great. I think some of my cards will will suffer. I, I have my Gaudi, um, uh, Lou Gehrig, for example, is a four. It's got a sticker on it even. It's on a good day. It's a three these days. It might even be a two. You know, it's an it's an old slab. It's an old grade. Um, anyhow, it just got me thinking a lot that I, I think um, I think we are particularly with vintage going into an era where where the number matters a little bit less, and I think that's a good thing. Oh uh, yeah, uh, that that's awesome. I really love that 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 sentiment, Jonathan. I think one of the things that always makes me uh, that always comes to my mind when thinking about this particular topic is. The concept that like, and, and I'm glad you said decade, right? Like, you know, the cards that we're talking about are all, you know, they're on this kind of like, many of them are like more than a hundred years old. A lot of them are on, you know, from the fifties, they're at like the 70 year mark. And, um, you know, in like grading has been around for like a blink of an eye compared to the, how long these cards have been around. And it, it would not shock me at all if over the next 10 years, like grading itself changes significantly, like how we think about it, how we value it, you know, how even it's performed, whether it's automated or blah, blah, blah. Like, but at the end of the day, the card is the card, the card isn't changing. Right. Like it might exist in a different slab that who knows what it looks like, but the card is the card. And I feel like you know, I, I would like to think that some of the, the things that you're feeling are a little bit more of a broader recognition of that fact that the card is the card and that, the, you know, it's not necessarily like it's one, it's, it's in a holder that has an opinion attached to it or it has a sticker attached to it, which is another opinion of the card. But then there's also, you know, that's not everything, right? Those are all opinions. Really well said, guys. Yeah. And that's, that's a really good take, Jonathan. And, it, it's um, right. I think, you know, a, a furtherance of the trend that we've been seeing over the last couple of years with the move toward eye appeal. And, you know, it seems like it, if anything, continues to accelerate. I, I like the way you talked about, you know, the card is said it's like a four to a six or yeah. a one point five to a three or a four, you know, maybe not a one, but a one point five to a three. Yeah. Um, you know, and and that's I think what we're that's a great description, I think, of what we're seeing in terms of how people are valuing cards. You know, it, I think it used to be even, you know, two or three years ago, shocking if a four would outsell an average six. But now we're I, we're seeing some four vintage fours sell for double the price of an average six. <laughs> you know, I mean, because of exactly the phenomenon you described and, you know, the continued focus by collectors on what's inside this lab um and you know and and also because i think um you know the also what you said the continued recognition of the variability of of the opinions on these you know the professional opinions and they're they're important and i'm by no means someone who's like anti-grading or anti-psa or whatever you know the the authentication is critical i think it makes it so much easier to transact remotely when you know the, we know the card is real and we know we we have at least some I believe some good sense that it hasn't been altered, um, you know. So so I'm I'm a proponent of that, but 
valuing that opinion appropriately and not having it be, you know, the, the only measure of the the value of the card seems to be wh- where we continue to be headed. Um, so, yeah, I think I think that's a great take on. Well, and, and I wanted to say the same thing. I don't feel at all cynical about grading. Yeah, I appreciate what they do. I, I love the way the cards look. They're they're secure. They're safe. They're authenticated. It shows that it wasn't altered, you know, by by at least a professional opinion. But yeah, it it is an opinion, and the and the standards will change over time. But uh, you know, all the cards I sent in, I sent in because I wanted them to be in the slab and I wanted to be safe, and it makes me feel like it's more of an asset that way. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd say I I enjoy um, consuming or you know buying already graded cards a lot more than I do going through the grading process. <laughs> yeah. I like PSA when I'm I'm buying or I, even SGC, but particularly PSA better when I'm buying hard when it's already encapsulated than when I'm dealing with them directly. Yeah, I, I lose more than I win when I buy them raw because there's so many people that are that are um, out there kind of speculating on that market. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yep. One th- yeah, one thing I want to add into this is like it's so funny like how um, eminently reasonable you guys are. Like I feel like th- that's one of the reason why we're such good buddies is that like. You know, I feel like if you want like the hot take in this, it's like grading is a scam down with grading. You know, <laughs> but the other side of it is like, you know, it's, you know, you gotta, you gotta, you know, best guy by the best trade you can. Cause those are the cards in the Pareto and blah, 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 blah. And then, um, whereas like our, our overall assessment is so like even handed and reasonable. It's like, yes, grading is helpful. It's one piece of a, of a, of a panoply of information that you have access to and make a decision about how you evaluate a card. So it's like definitely not like a, a ratings bonanza kind of a tape, but <laughs> eminently reasonable and very glad that um, we share it. It's no accident that we got our tens of viewers <laughs> here tuning in with us to, with, for our reasonable takes on the hobby. <laughs> All right. All right. Nate, you want to share your yeah. activity? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Um, so yeah, the the kind of um biggest thing for me over these last few weeks was uh was actually uh what was it? Uh last weekend, yeah, about a week ago. Um my son and I, um, he's cards for life thirty-two on on Instagram and a big collector as well. He's fifteen years old and we for the second year now went up to Atlanta and set up uh, a table at the culture collision trade show up there. Uh, and, you know, and as continues to be the case for me, I feel like that's, I don't know if, if not like the most enjoyable aspect of the hobby for me, just way, way up there. I don't know. I, the, it's hard to top the Instagram community, you know, like this curated community that we've created. I, I know a lot of people complain about the Instagram card community, but this group that we've created is is pretty special. Um, and so that's way up there, too, certainly. But, you know, just that experience of going to a show and, you know, it's it's really fun to be on the other side of the table and, and set up it as a dealer as well. But, you know, kind of 24-7 cards for two and a half days or so is... uh you know, r- really my, my idea of a great time. And then, you know, the, the chance to, to do it with my son and him being as passionate about it as well, just makes it that much better. But, um, you know, the, the conversations that you have set when you're set up are, are really fun. You know, you get such a broad range of, of people coming around to the table, you know, a lot of kids, you get some 
older, you know, I had a really interesting guy, probably in his seventies, like kind of true New Yorker who had gotten a Willie Mays autograph himself, like 30 or 40 years ago. It was still raw. And he said, you know, he's, he was at a show and he, he got it from Willie and Nate tiny Archibald had been set up right next to Willie. And this guy kind of knew tiny and was talking to him. And so you know, he, so when he got over to Willie, he kind of had a little credibility and Willie was usually cranky with most guys that came up, but he kind of chatted with this guy a little. So he had like this whole story that was really pretty cool that went along with the card. Uh, it was one that kind of didn't end up fitting for me, but just you know, I had a great like 15 minute conversation with this guy about his experiences and, and collecting and all that. And then, you know, just like tons of kids coming up to the table and, and really fun. We have basically like the last couple of years, uh, one showcase that's all vintage cards and then another that's kind of like a third vintage and two thirds modern. And so it's interesting to see what people look at. And, you know, and a lot of the kids, you know, are are focusing on the, the vintage stuff um, and, you know, really fun to talk to them about those cards and help, you know, try to educate them and see what they're thinking about. And oftentimes, you know, they're with their dad or with their grandpa and, you know, they're kind of telling them about the history of the players. And, you know, so it's just, it's, it's really a cool opportunity to see um, some, some different kind of aspects of the hobby. And then um, we actually had a a pretty fun buying opportunity this time that 49 um, Bowman Yogi that I showed was one of the cards that we kept from that. But there was a, a guy that came up that had some cards that he was looking to sell. And, we made him, you know, I think a very reasonable offer and ended up buying four of the cards and we sold two of them later at the show and we kept two and, you know, the couple that we sold pretty much paid for the two that we kept. And so, you know, that was kind of a fun little thing to do, you know, for guys that aren't really usually, you know, doing that. Well, my son actually does that kind of stuff a fair bit, but I don't. So, <laughs> so you know, I have a question. Yeah. Uh, for what for you? You know the the types of offers you make when you when you're on the other side of the table and walk up to a dealer. How how did you make a different kind of offer when you were the dealer? I you know I always see these dealers on Instagram saying paying strong seventy percent of comps or something like right. without the mindset you had to have. Yeah, I mean we you know we were really direct. I mean we just we pulled out our my son and I pulled out our phones and we pulled up the latest card ladder comps and. We said, you know, here's kind of like the last three comps and, you know, we've paid for the table and to set up and all that. So, you know, I think like a lot of guys here, we're willing to pay kind of 70, 75 percent, you know, maybe 80 percent kind of in that range of, you know, what the latest comps are. And, and they were pretty, you know, the the Yogi was actually a really nice eye appeal card. Uh, the others were not quite as good, but but decent. Um, and so, yeah, we ended up probably, you know we made a, a reasonable offer. I'd say kind of blended about 75% of comps and he thought that was fair and he accepted it. And that was pretty much it. So do you know, question, do you know, um, I mean, I saw the Yogi, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful example and, and a bit hard to comp because it's a half grade card. Right. Um, but did you, did you get the sense that he had, were you the first people he talked to about selling this, this card or what, what was your sense of that? My sense was that we were actually, yeah, we were kind of in the middle of the show, but um, my son had a good idea, which is, you know, and, and a lot of the dealers do this. It's by no means novel, but we had like a big sign that we had made up and printed out that said, you know, we are buying especially vintage cards. 
And, you know, and the guys we were doing the transaction said, you know, oh, I saw your sign. And so I decided to ask you guys that. I feel like maybe he had walked around and kind of looked around at some other tables, but we ended up in a conversation. We talked for a while before he actually pulled the cards out, you know, so I think maybe in for a spot where he felt comfortable and, you know, and, and he, you know, he had a pretty decent sense, I think, of kind of what the values were. But I think he appreciated that we pulled the comps out and showed him and, um, you know, we were like really kind of straightforward. And I think that was his expectation was to be kind of in that 75% range. Yeah. Do you know if he um was he was he selling to like get out of the hobby? Was he selling to buy other cards? Like, what were his motivations to sell? And had he been had he held on to these cards for a while? Uh, right with with these, yeah. So he said um he had he had gotten kind of fairly heavily into the hobby. I think kind of early COVID time, and he was kind of slowly selling off some of the cards that he my sense is he's kind of taken a step back from from the hobby i think i think he had done some modern stuff and some vintage stuff but you know saw that we were on the vintage side and you know and had these cards available and yeah so yeah it, i think for him it was kind of a a step back my sense is that he's not too active in it anymore okay so, cool yeah and then, you know, and it's just, it's a really nice opportunity to go and, you know, be able to create some liquidity for, for me, you know, I kind of think about my, my hobby collecting and, and budget it and largely on an annual basis. And, you know, Matthew, one of the things you said, I think is, is smart, you know, like I'm, I'm usually like tapped out by December and anyone that thinks about it, you know, like I do, you, you, you know, you might be bidding against less people <laughs> that last month or two for, for a variety you should what to Garmin fiscal years. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, you know, it's, this is a good opportunity to go like, you know, for me, it, it's almost all like either doubles or cards that, you know, for whatever reason, and, and there aren't as many in this category, but for whatever reason, I just don't like as much anymore. Or maybe I've realized it's, it's not the forever example for me. And so, you know, yeah, it creates a good chance to, you know, to go kind of be on that side of it and see how other collectors and dealers think about it and, and actually move some cards. I sold a lot less this year than I did last year. Um, I was actually shocked last year. I sold like $20,000 worth of cards, which is way more than, than I expected. This year, I was only like $5,000. Um, um, my son sold more. Last year, he sold like 2000 This year, he was about 5000 So together, last year, we were like 22 And this year, we were about 10 Um There was one really big card that kind of goosed some last year. So that certainly. And, you know, th so there's some big variability based on that. But um, so it, it was a little less, you know, kind of volume overall, certainly than last year. But I my sense wasn't that that was because it was less activity. It just like a couple less people ended up buying than than they did last year. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I think uh, I think that, you know, that was pretty much it. And the trade nights, obviously, with these things are a lot of fun. We didn't end up really doing too many transactions, but um, the sports card investor guy who's opening that cards HQ, that, you know, really big card shop had the right on saturday night which which was kind of fun to be able to go to that shop and check it out and it actually like it's a pretty good setup it's it's pretty impressive i think yeah it really is i mean i think people you know you're 
for us, uh, you know, we're so picky about the stuff that we buy that we're not going to walk into many shops anywhere in the country and buy stuff that we're really interested in. But like for a lot of people in the hobby walking in there, I, I think it's a really neat place. It's really welcoming. It's set up really well. They have a ton of inventory. They actually did have a decent bit of vintage. And my sense was that it wasn't really like kind of uh, heavily taking eye appeal into account in terms of how they priced it. So, you know, we talked and we we're like, man, if we lived close, we actually probably would stop by here a decent bit because they're probably turning it over right. and they're seeing stuff and you actually could have some decent opportunities for, for buying there. But um, that was a neat little kind of side opportunity to check that out. Nate, did, really cool. Did you, um, did you bring any cards that you didn't intend to sell, but were just kind of conversation starters? Um, Man, that is, uh, that's something that we, I thought a lot about doing. I, I didn't really end up doing that. I, I, I'd say I divided it. The stuff that I bought was kind of divided into two categories, stuff that I really kind of wanted to, to sell. And then some stuff that I really didn't want to sell, but I would for the right price and kind of to the right person, right circumstances, mm-hmm. you know, um, but I didn't bring any that like I consider really like off limits kind of stuff. I'm tempted to, right? Cause that whole kind of museum showcase kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I, I do think that would be a lot of fun. And it's something that I, you know, next time it, part of my thought there is I think at a show that's more like kind of hardcore vintage oriented, I'd maybe be, a little more tempted to do that. This show has a really kind of broad variety of people that are there. And the hardcore vintage folks are a little bit less common than, you know, if you were to Strongsville or Chantilly or the National or something like that. And then, you know, I get a little nervous traveling with like too much stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Point we were talking about before that risk of loss that, you know, makes me a little nervous. But going forward, I could see myself bringing at least you that are just kind of pure conversation starters um yeah yeah i mean the thing is is that like i want that experience so much to be on like the 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 dealer side of the table or like just the randomness and the conversations that you get but i sell so few cards that it like i i I really want to support this like kind of showcase idea like i think that this sounds so fun because I mean, that's what Instagram is for a lot, for a lot of us. It's just like a way to showcase our cards and talk about our cards. But there's something special about the the in-person experience, like getting to hold the cards in your hand and like really look at them that I really want to find a way to do that without like irritating a bunch of people by like taking up table space without any cards you intend. Right. Right. Yeah, I know. I, I hear people say that. I mean, I don't know. I Is that... A- legitimate argument by those people i mean if you're paying for the table and you're there and it's a 500 400 500 table show is it really putting anyone out if you're there showing off incredible stuff that they're not going to probably see other places i mean the the guy that gets irritated by that probably isn't someone that i want to spend too much time with anywhere <laughs> yeah i think that'd be right like i know that 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 guy um like cousin Tony from um, the cousins collectibles podcast. Like he was trying to set up like a showcase event with um, a local card shop um, in Pennsylvania to him. And basically like the guy was into it. He's like, no, but we can't call it a showcase. It, it has to be a trade night. Like there has to be 
like I we won't we're not going to do it unless the kind of the transactional nature is highlighted and like like Tony's like why he just like doesn't get it and I'm just totally on board with that concept but I feel like the hobby in general maybe isn't very keen on it right people want to at least have the the notion that it's possible that they could get a deal done for the cards mm-hmm. right like, we're all we're all always acquiring new cards <laughs> yeah so yeah well great stuff guys um so i i think next we were going to move on to um vintage showcase with uh with cards we've been appreciating in our collections or maybe you know reasonably newly added to uh, to our collections. Either of you guys care to kick that one off? Let me, let me grab it. Right, it's right here. Um, j- just because today is Willie Mays Day, I, I, um, I don't, I don't keep many of my cards that are super expensive, like up on the shelf. I, there's a glare, so I'm holding it at an angle. But this is my Willie Mays rookie for folks just listening. It's a, it's an SGC four with the tuxedo, and this is one um, that yeah, I got it two years ago at the national. Uh, from a dealer uh, from Chicago named Eddie. He's on Instagram. And it was in the old, it was in actually like a very early generation SGC slab. And then I took it to last year's national um, with my daughter, handed it into the guys at SGC. And one, it was really uh, pleasing to me to watch the guy intaking it. He asked me uh, what the, what my value on the card was. And I told him it was well, well into five figures. And then he looked at it and he, he, he called over two other guys just to say like, come look at this card, you know, and they, a bunch of guys all came over and they just kind of, you know, um, uh, you know, with wide eyes looked at it like it was a, a, a beautiful woman or something. And I was like, yeah, that's my piece of cardboard. That's my old Willie Mays. I love it in the new tuxedo. So I, I've had it up on the shelf. I've got it in one of these slab mags, which I think helps a little bit, not too much, not as much UV light. It's the card which I like. So uh, yeah, happy Willie Mays day. Stunning example, man. It's just because that, that card is a tough card for anyone who's like really um, looked at a lot of examples to find one with the centering and the registration and the color like that. It's, it's really hard. That's definitely a very high, high end example. Amazing. Yeah, it really is. And and that card in your collection holds a little bit of a special place in my heart, Jonathan, because you and I met just a few minutes after you yep. you acquired that card, met met for the first time. And yeah, when you pulled that out, I was like, Oh my god, like the the thing like radiates. Yeah, that was that was a great day. Great day. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. All right, Matthew, what do you got? Awesome. So, okay, before I show my card, I want to show my cool Christmas present. So check out this jersey that I'm wearing here. So this is a Kansas City Monarch Jackie Robinson jersey. That's right. So I got a replica jersey from, um, there's, I forgot what company it is that they make. Like It's like flat. It's like a wool. It's like really kind of itchy. So I have a good shirt underneath it. But um, yeah, so now I'm really kind of getting into like these like specialty jerseys. And I feel like you know, if someone taps me on the shoulder when I'm wearing this jersey and they know what it's about, I'm automatically like, yes, this is a cool person. And this <laughs> is a person I'm willing to spend some of my time with. So I'm really, yeah, exactly. Emmett Field flannel, super nice. So, um, yeah, I was like, I got to get Jackie Robinson jersey. I don't really like the, jo- the, the Dodgers. So when I saw this Monarchs one, I was like, got to get it. I think it's also the one that, um, in that, um, the Jackie Robinson movie that that came out a couple years ago. I think this is also the jersey that was highlighted in mm-hmm. that. So, 
that 42 yeah 42 exactly let's see so the card i've been kind of crushing on a little bit lately is this one um 1957 tops Ernie Banks. So it's really fun. I mean, it's one thing that's so fun about Instagram is just like all the people that reach out to you that are, you know, interested in chasing this or that card. They want to get your opinion and they want to learn a little bit more. And I've been, I think I've been talking to a couple different people recently about kind of getting more or getting some Ernie Banks cards and them asking like, oh, what kind of, which Ernie Banks are some of your favorites? And um, I just love this 57 tops. Ernie Banks. It's just such a cool card. Um, you know, 57 tops, obviously the first set with like the, the photograph images kind of like, you know, piggybacking on 1953 Bowman color. And I think like this, just the way that this card is, is designed and the way that they, um, chose, like they centered the image within the, the border. It just looks so cool. And, um, I, 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 this is a, this is a Chicago Cubs jersey that I really want to get. Is this this era where you got like Chicago across um, across the chest like that, and this kind of gray flannel color. Um, so I'm just really feeling this Banks card. This was also the card that kind of kicked off um, my Ernie Banks and like Cubs throughout the years project. Is up until this point, I had the '56 tops Banks, and I had his rookie card. And then this one popped up on eBay randomly, and it's a 6.5. So I love 6.5 grade overall. And this one popped up on eBay. It's just a stunning example with really good centering. And I got this one, and I'm like, okay, it's time to do a Banks run. And then, you know, then it does cascaded from the Banks run into doing a whole Cubs project kind of a deal. Um, but just love the way that card looks. Can You know, I love taking it out every couple of weeks and then you know when i'm when i'm rifling through my cards it's one of the ones that i always kind of stick on for a while and and, and stare at um so that's that's the one i've really been, been feeling a lot these last couple when i i saw when i saw that card on your instagram feed i said that that's it i've got to get it and i i went out and got mine like the next week it, for uh for folks uh who don't know i i'm in the I'm probably in year three of a 10 year journey of trying to get that entire set in PSA slabs. And I'm trying to get them all in the six, uh, or, or, or a few a little bit better, but that's one of my favorite ones. The, um, the thing that made that my favorite set, this is a, it's a film reference, but there's a film director who's one of my favorites. His name is Wes Anderson. If anybody knows Wes Anderson films, and he has this amazing old fashioned fifties, sixties aesthetic. And the font he always uses is perfectly centered, and it looks exactly like the font from 57 Tops. So I, on my PSA registry, I think I call it like my Wes Anderson set something or other. Um, but I, I just love, uh, yeah, I love the photography. I love the throwback. A lot of people think that set as a super boring design. And to me, it just it just lights me up. And your, your example of that is a, a beautiful one. Yeah, incredible example and yeah the photography on that is what really stands out to me like that's such a unique angle that we're seeing Ernie from and I feel like he had so many beautiful cards but so many of them are kind of you know some variation on a portrait mm -hmm. and so to see him kind of you know in his stance at from such a unique angle is a really nice um you know element of the 
hard canon and you know i kind of appreciate it from from that perspective and um yeah that's and and then that that 6.5 grade that's uh that was kind of the classic grade for you to collect with your fixes as well right yeah that's right that's the grade that i always tend to like if it's a 6.5 i'm like yeah i'll take a look at it (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah that's awesome man great card um all right so here is uh here's the one that my kind of willie mays day card uh try to get the right kind of angle here with the light but the 55 tops um blue background card and uh this is one that um i've had for for a couple years and that you know i think aesthetically mazes cards is is way up there for me so i've had this one out um you know enjoying this one today and probably we'll we'll keep it out for a little while uh just in honor of of the you know the willie mays commemoration and um and then showing one more this is the other one that i've i've kind of been appreciating lately and this is the t206 tris speaker and you guys were with me actually when i picked this one up uh, national yeah just got this one back in hand here recently um and it's a 1.5 it's the piedma 350 back and it's uh you know i I certainly overpaid for the grade on this one, but I don't think I overpaid for the eye appeal yet. No way. Yeah. Was it that blue? Tell us that is. Yeah. It's it's so pretty. If you told us it's a four from this distance, everybody would be like, right. yeah, it is. You know? I mean, it's gorgeous. Thank you. Yeah. The the front is so sharp and nice. And yeah, the, the, um, but that blue background is really vibrant. You know, it's uh, the, the back has the kind of um glue staining you know in uh some type of uh book probably for a while Uh, but i'm totally fine with that you know that's part of the the card's history i can live with that um in order to you know have what's probably was a pretty substantial discount for most fronts that look like this one so uh, i just got this one back in a pwcc mail day recently and been really enjoying having this one back in hand so that's that's an example of a card that just like makes you really appreciate the artistry of T206, right? Like the like how how do they choose to to kind of put Tris in that particular angle where he's like kind of, you know, most of the color of the card is really like leaning one way, you know, it's like you would think that like just people would just choose something where like the image is this wholly centered, but the fact that he's kind of like at this angle in his hands, it just looks it's stunning and it, it, it's really incredible what they were able to do just in like, you know, 1909 when they were making these cards. I mean, it's, it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. Thanks, man. Yeah. Well said about the T206s, man. It's just that set just gives and gives and gives. I mean, the, the beauty and the variation and the artistry is, you know, it, it's uh, uh, as revered as it is, obviously for very good reason. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's funny because people always think of it because of like the Wagner, right? But then if you look at some of these cards, it, it just pulls you in. It's a set that just pulls you in because it's simply it's simply stunning. Um, this it's gorgeous. By the way, uh, Vintage Card Fiend has left a few comments. Just wanted to say hello. He's he's one of the guys on Instagram who has the most amazing deep collection of 
high eye appeal, low grade cards. So I just wanted to give a shout out and say, hey. Yeah, he also has an incredible raw card collection. I know we're all raw card appreciators and his his raw collection is sweet. Yeah. He also, he sure, got a, um, a Cracker Jack Grover Alexander um, this past year, which has ascended to a pretty high place in his collection. And that might be a pretty de- decent segue for us. Yeah. Uh, we move on to our next topic, which is uh our our scuba gear deep dive um and we've uh we've selected the very meaty topic tonight of of talking about the 1914 and 1915 cracker jack sets um which you know what when you bite that off that that's a big bite so and and you know a little bit of pressure we we got to do that one justice so um (laughs) with that Either of you guys, I, we, we haven't really coordinated kind of which elements we're each going to talk about, but I know we, we tend to do pretty well just kind of riffing on things. Maybe, so here to kick off. Maybe, maybe I'll jump in. I, you know, one thing I want to say when I listen to podcasts or I hear people talk about cards, I assume they're all experts. And I just got to say, I am not an expert. One thing I love about this hobby is that I'm constantly learning, right? And so... I mean, I'm even just preparing for this. I was learning about the Cracker Jack set and thinking about my own journey of even first when I heard about it and going deeper. I consider like in my own mind or just like my ethos of what a baseball card is, 1944 Cracker Jack was the first set of what to me baseball cards are. It's the the, um, before that, most of the cards... We call them T something or other, but the T stands for tobacco. They were tobacco cards, just like that speaker. They were smaller and narrower. But, you know, I grew up in the junk wax era, and I know what the size of a card is supposed to be. And Cracker Jack was the first set that ever was close to that size. And it also was one of the first sets that was distributed not with tobacco for, for you know, grown men, but uh, with candy for kids. And um, now it wasn't the first. I And I learned this just in preparing for this. I think that the set that have an E, like uh, the American Caramel set that was like similar time as T206 uh, came earlier, but those looked like tobacco cards. But um, but Cracker Jack was, yeah, they, they, they had the wider, bigger card, pretty close to a modern card. And um, the other thing I just wanted to say for context um, not getting into the players or the set itself is um, I learned that Take Me Out to the Ball Game was released in 1908. So that was when they said, buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jacks. And so I, I imagine it was already popular at ballparks for people to buy Cracker Jacks. But then the Cracker Jack company sort of, they had to do something about all that great publicity they were getting. So that then they they decided, you know, just a few years later to start putting uh, cards of ball players in the box which is what happened with the uh, 1940, uh, 1914 Cracker Jack. Yeah, it's, it's such, um, it's obviously like a landmark set in the, in the history of the hobby um, coming out in Cracker Jacks and some noteworthy things, right, are that the, the cards are pretty well known for being very, very thin. So the card stock is, is super thin. Um, you know, that fact coupled with that they were in, boxes of Cracker Jack, which are, you know, full of sugar and stuff like that, um, led to the fact that I'm sure that they were produced at, at like very high volumes. But in terms of the cards and examples that exist today, right, there's very few. Um, 
And of course, like the, one of the key distinctions is that, you know, the 1914 examples were only distributed within the Cracker Jack boxes. Um, whereas the, the 1915s were distributed both in Cracker Jack boxes, but then there was also a way, I think if you look on the back of them, they tell you that you could, um, you could send away, um, for a complete set of them if you wanted. Yeah. So there are right examples of the 1915 cards that, um, that exist in, in very high grade. Um, and you know, one of the things that, okay, so that era of cards is amazing. Oh, there's an, a sweet lash way that, that Nate's put up on the screen. Nate, is that a 1914 or a 1915? It is a 14. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. So there's a 14 Lajway. And so it's so cool. Cause when you look at these cards, you know, it's very hard to, to find them in high grade. Like the one that Nate has here is a one, which seems shocking because the color, um, looks amazing. The corners look really good. Um, it's very common to find them with corners that are like, that look like they have mouse bites. Um, or, or like, here's, here's, here's my 1914, um, Henry Zimmerman, who was one of the, the Black Sox players. You can see here that like that corner looks pretty funky. Mm -hmm. Like it might've even been snipped. Um, and this one somehow is graded to three. I don't know if it would grade a three these days. It's in a, you know, ultra old, um, STZ holder here. Um, one thing that kind of just from an educational point of view, a quick way to tell the difference is that the 1914, if you flip the card over, you can see, you can read the back, um, is kind of oriented top to bottom correctly. Whereas here's, here's a 1915, uh, Roger Bresnahan. Um, and you can see that when you flip the card over, the text is upside down. So that's a classic way to tell the difference. If, you know, someone just hands you one of these cards and you want to know what year it was from. Um, I think there are also some differences in the players, right? Nate, like, um, I think that, what is it like Chrissy Matthewson, his card is his, most players have the same car. It looks the same in the 1914 set versus 1915, but there are some players that who, whose image changes. Isn't that right? Yeah, that is. Yeah. He is, he's one of those. And you know, they're actually, I've got the 1915 Matthewson queued up here. Um, he, uh, right. He's one of those that had. A different pose in 15 from 14. Um, there also were more players in 1915. The total um, set count for, uh, I'm sorry, in 1915, and the 1914 set count was 144. And in 1915, it was 176. So mm. there were just a small handful of players that were in 14, but not 15. And then there were several players that were added in 15 that were not in 14 as well. So there's, there is a large degree of overlap, but there are, you know, a few players who had poses that changed. There are a few players that dropped out after 14. And then there were several players that were added, um, just in, in 15. Um, one of the things that I did in, in taking a look for tonight was I'd spend a little in, you know, we don't spend tend to spend a ton of time on pop counts, but I just wanted to get a sense for, for what it looked like for these cards. So I just went on to PSA and SGC and, uh, for the 1914s and, um, you know, th this was kind of my sense, but when you combine PSA and SGC, the average population per card is about 60. Um, uh, and for the 1915s, it's, it's 124. Um, 
there are, yeah, there are about what, 8,500 total 1914s graded and about double that from, from the 1915s. So, you know, uh, that's one of the things is, you know, I mean, these cards are, are just kind of so beautiful and, you know, feature some of the great early stars and yet they're still so rare as well. You know, I feel like so, so often it's kind of one or the other, um, where you have either, you know, a phenomenally beautiful set or a phenomenally rare set, but to combine those two things, the way that these sets did, I think it, you know, a pretty unusual thing. And, um, you know, part of the attraction for, for people in collecting them. And, you know, one, one of the things for me with them is, you know, I feel like it's one of the kind of fun aspects is it's really one of the only sets I can think of where I actually prefer cards that have a flaw, you know, Mm -hmm. like branch Ricky is from the 1915 set and you can see some pretty substantial staining on it. And I, I prefer that rather than a clean one, you know, like I, I like to know, and, and especially for the 1915s, because as you guys noted, you know, those were available either via send away or you could get them in the box. You know, the 1914s were available just in the box. Um, but with the 15s, when you see what is pretty clearly the caramel and oil staining, you have a pretty good sense that this probably was a box pulled um, copy, which you know, is, is, is kind of a neat thing. Um, and it's, you know, Matthew, you alluded to what they say, and I, I think it's kind of interesting maybe to, to just read the back of this 1915, which says, this is one of a series of pictures of famous ball players and managers in the American national and federal leagues given free with Cracker Jack, the famous popcorn confection, one card in each package. Send 100 Cracker Jack coupons or one coupon and 25 cents. There's the Chicago office for a complete set of 176 pictures. So um, 25 cents wow. and one handsome. That's awesome. Yeah. Handsome album to hold full set of pictures sent post paid for 50 coupons or one coupon and 10 cents in coin or stamps. And it says. Ruckheim Brothers and Eckstein, Brooklyn, New York, and Chicago, Illinois. That's so kind of a neat part of the the history on the back as well. I love that. And so, several of our buddies in the comments had made the same point that, especially for the 15s, when it has the stains, that kind of makes it the appeal greater because you know it was really pulled out of a box. Um, yeah. I, I I wanted to, it, w- one thing I did when I was preparing for this was I just. I just went and looked on eBay at the at the 14 Cracker Jacks that were listed by now or auction. It was an amazingly low number. And to, and to your point on scarcity, there just aren't that many of these out there. Um, and the overall inventory on eBay was way lower than I imagined that would be. You know, you'll often see a collection get consigned and they get snatched up and they don't sit on the market long. I, um, I'll, I'll share the one. I, I have one Cracker Jack card so far. And when I started learning about the set years ago, you know, I learned about the big cards. Of course, there's the Ty Cobb and the and the Jackson, the Shoeless, um, the the Matthewson. I, I think it might be the rarest of all of them. Is the is the is the Matthewson from '14 because it's got that beautiful horizontal image. Um, and for me, when I was looking at that, well, I I want to buy a Hall of Fame card, and I want it to be one where I love the artwork and. Um, 
just like I was saying on the last episode about 53 tops, I think Cracker Jack is one where there's there's some gorgeous artwork. There's a few of them are a little bit duds, you know, so I, I pulled up all the Hall of Fame cards, frankly, even the comments. Um, and I looked, you know, what were the Hall of Famers that I really loved? Um, and for me, it was the Lajuay and then the um, the Johnny Evers, you know, from the famous poem, Tinkers to Evers to Chance. So I'll, I'll show that, I've, you know, I, you guys have seen this in person. I, I looked for a really long time and eventually got this 14 Evers. I love the artwork on it. You just, you know, just with like a, just a few tones of gray and black in the red background. It's just gorgeous artwork. Um, and really, if you set aside values, this is one of my very most favorite cards in my entire collection. I get it out and I stare at it all the time. Um, but it's also a set that I want to say um, some of the commons, just because they're so beautiful and so uh, so rare, I think are, are cards to go chase. I think, Nate, you might have recently bought one. One that's on my list is the Roger Peckinpah. I, turns out he was a great defensive shortstop from his time. I didn't know much about him. Uh, look him up. You know, fun, fun guy to learn about. But I love the card because it's one of the few horizontal ones. And it, he's in the follow through from, you know, probably throwing out a runner at first base. And that's a great looking horizontal card. Um, another one that I think is beautiful in this ad, I need to read more about him, is the Joe Wood. Look up the Cracker Jack Joe Wood. It's just, he's a common, but it's a beautiful, uh, beautiful image. So I think, you know, there's so much there. It's uh, such scarce cards, but I, I hope to collect several of the commons and I hope to collect a few more of the, the Hall of Famers. One more I'll mention. I love that it had some of the managers and executives and the Comiskey card when he's got his top hat on it, I think is just an awesome image. So, that's another one that's on my short list. Yeah, so um, great thoughts, guys. I, a couple of things I wanted to, to add here is that, so if you look at the back of the 1914, it actually says what the whole print run of the set was. It says that the famous popcorn collection, one card in each package, our first issue is 10 million pictures. So they started off with 10 million of these things. And what did you say, Nate? Total pop was like 8,000? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean... Yeah, these cards do not pop up very frequently. One of the ones that I really want is the Wahoo Santa Crawford. I've been looking for that one since the National last year. have not seen a single example pop up recently. That one's on my list for sure. Um, one other thing I wanted to say about it is that um, Cracker Jack is one a area where I would say like hobby vintage elitism comes through for sure. And it like drives me freaking nuts. <laughs> That people take a big old dump on 1915 Cracker Jack because, you know, some would say it's a reprint set or, you know, it's easier to find than 1914. But that's like the dumbest thing I've ever heard because the 1915s are still super rare. I mean, the 14s are like insanely rare. The 15s are also very, very rare. As you said, Nate, there's like twice as many of them total. They still never pop up. And... They're also, you know, stunning. And it is true that I would prefer to get a 1915. I would prefer a 1914 or for a 1915 with some sugar staining. But I'm not going to turn down a 1915 that, that doesn't have sugar staining if it's a nice example. Because um, they just don't pop up and, and they're, they're gorgeous cards. And that elitism drives me freaking nuts, man. <laughs> Really well said, Matthew. That's that's really similar to how I think about it as well. Like if if 
I can get a 14, then I, I do prefer it. Um, it was earlier. They are more rare. You are guaranteed to have some, or not guaranteed, but very likely to have some staining on them. But I, I, you know, mine are pretty evenly split between 14s and 15s. And I love the 15s, you know, tremendously well, too. And you certainly would never turn my nose. I mean, they're, you know. The tre- tremendous, tremendous cards. So yeah, I I don't get that sentiment at all. Either. They're like museum cards. They're crazy. <laughs> yeah. By the way, interesting discussion happening in the comments right now. I was wondering if we could extrapolate something about survival rates for T two hundred six cards and what the pops are in comparison to the print run and survive survive population of Cracker Jack. My suspicion is that because Cracker Jacks were being ripped open by kids, and I see the way my kids treat things, that probably the tobacco cards had a little bit higher survivor. I imagine there were more of those being opened in a den by an older gentleman and kind of tucked under the desk. So I, my best guess would be more more per capita of tobacco cards would have survived in collections versus Cracker Jacks. But what do you guys think? I think you're probably right. So yeah, the statement would be, they, they printed 10 million of these things. Current graded population is 8,000. So there's basically like a one in 1,000 survival rate. That's that, that will, that's what we would draw from yeah. the math here. So then what's the, the, what's the total like PSA pop of, of the T206? It's gotta be, if I had, I mean, I know there's like 2,000 cobs, so it's probably like 20,000 or something like that would be my guess. Yeah. Um, um, for, 20,000 for, for what, Matthew? For the total PSA pop of all T206. I would guess higher. A big right. number. Yeah, right. So 2,000. Yeah, Cobb between the four poses, I think, is probably in like the six or 7,000 yeah. range. I think it's just the reds are two. That's right. 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 Yeah. And with, with so many cards, it, there's a tremendous number of those. Great. I think, you know, average... You know, for for the stars at least, they tend to be kind of in the thousand to fifteen hundred ish range. And there's five hundred of them, right? Yeah. So yeah, you're, we're probably talking. Yeah, you're probably talking hundred thousand, maybe even more right. total. Big number. Um, but I I would guess you're right, Jonathan, that the survival rate of the T two O six is probably lower than or, or higher than the the Cracker Jack, just because of the nature of the distribution. Who who was opening the package and probably also like, yeah, I'm sitting at home going to op- have some tobacco or I'm at a baseball game getting a Cracker Jack and chucking <laughs> this car, stuffing it in my pocket or whatever. Yeah, I think you're right. What do you think, Nate? It's interesting to me to think about how many Shoeless Joes and Cobbs and Maddies ended up like underfoot being trampled on at a baseball game, right? Like <laughs> those things just, you know, how how they met their end because it, it's so um, such a tiny portion of them that that really did survive. And um, but yeah, no, I, I, I like that theory as well that, um, you know, with with kids pulling them and um you know, something that was very disposable and, you know, in Cracker Jacket compared to, you know, maybe cigarettes or a pouch, you know, yeah. pouch that, you know, maybe you had for longer and, you know, more likely were to having at home where you could set it aside. So, yeah, I, w- I would think that's probably right. I also have seen that, um, well, it says that the 10 million were printed. Um, it actually, 
maybe was a smaller number that that actually actually ended up being printed and that made that was sort of maybe a marketing thing to kind of make it seem like it was a this big uh, bigger production than it actually was no, i don't think anyone actually knows how many got printed but another interesting element and i don't have any of the higher number 1914s right the 1915 doesn't say how many were printed that's only on the 14s and it references that 10 million but i think you know, there were two series in 1914. There was one to 72 and then 73 to 144. And I believe in the second series, um, it says that there were actually 15 million that were printed. Oh. All mine are in the, the lower first series. And I, I think the population, the first series are, I'll tend to be a little bit higher. The really rare ones and tend to be in the second series. Like I think the and in the Shoeless Joe, um, and you know, a couple of the other really rare ones are there, but yeah, they actually reference a, a different number. So it, it's hard to know how many actually, you know, mm-hmm. really, but it certainly fun to speculate about such a cool set. So, so yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think there are people that have literally like de- devoted their lives to just collecting that. Yeah. Set. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I'd say I have one more to, to show here in this the 1914 Walter Johnson that uh, I got with my very last bid stretching past my comfort zone a couple years ago. And that's like maybe the happiest I am that I ever made, like pushed bid one more time because I enjoyed this card so much over the last two and a half or three years. Um, but this one is up there for me in terms of like, you know, you run it out of that and you can only grab one card. Like, this one would be right there. You know, you got to sell all of them and you can, you know, just it's one where it kind of feel like a caretaker of a little piece of history. You know, we feel that about all of our cards. Yeah. feels really strong with this one. Um, so that that's a, a fun one. And then I just wanted to point out a couple other things. I um, went to the supermarket to, to shop for the and I wanted to see like, you know, what Cracker Jack was available and. I had to ask around, but I finally found, you know, this, this was what they had, um, was this, there's no boxes, but you've got the kind of disposable, uh, pouch here and it still has the prize inside. So I'm sure what exactly that is, but might crack that open here in a little bit. And then I, uh, I have this book, the Cracker Jack collection, baseball's prized players. This was, um, uh, put together I uh, issued in I think 2013 it came out and uh really cool artwork and images inside it a lot of interesting information and I found this one available online I think it was like 15 bucks or something from a secondhand bookstore but if anyone's interested in learning more or having access like ready access to the images of all the cards I definitely recommend trying to find super cool Nate you you guys remember as kids having Cracker Jack in the boxes yeah, hundred percent for sure. Yeah, me too. Me too. Actually, I've had some recently, and they totally scaled back on the ratio of peanut to uh, popcorn. It's like mostly popcorn with very few of the candied peanuts. It's the same. That's my favorite part. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm. I just popped this one open. I mean, I think you know one of the fun prizes. I feel like when we were kids, I unfortunately. There was this was not an error package. There was no of nineteen fourteen or nineteen fifteen <laughs> baseball card inside. <laughs> I feel like when I was a kid, the the one I always wanted was like the um the temporary yep. tattoo. 
right? <laughs> That's a pretty fun prize to get. And they're they're actually our collectors of the Cracker Jack prizes, right? And they will, um, you know, they collect all the various prizes, which have, um, you know, really varied tremendously through the years. Looks like this is a sticker. Uh, yeah, a little sticker here from, yeah, the logo. So, I have um, Walter Johnson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what Bob Lassa in the comments is saying too. He was bummed when he didn't get a <laughs> baseball card when he opened the box. Yeah, for sure. All right. So, should we anything else on the Cracker Jacks, or should we finish out of? Yeah, let's move on. I think let's bring it home. I'll tell you, this stuff still tastes really good, <laughs> even as and not at a ball game. I can smell it from over here. <laughs> So, um, guys, any recent pickups and or closing thoughts? I'll give mine. I'll give mine. I was thinking uh, Publius13, our buddy Chris, who gives us a hard time. He often makes the comment on Instagram that, you know, any old dummy can collect, but it takes a a real uh, intelligent, artful person to curate. And every time I read that, I think, yeah, I'm I'm any old dummy because I just collect. I am I am not a curator. I love having all kinds of projects. And I want those projects to last decades, you know. So I'll I'll share a bunch of the the random stuff I'm picking up when I'm in chill mode and not buying. So one thing my wife and I've been doing is collecting all the early SI for kids uh, cards of female athletes, and they were doing some incredible stuff. This is in the early '90s. I mean, here's Jean Driscoll, uh, a wheelchair racer; Kara Beth Burnside, a skateboarder. There's uh, Robin Evansfield, a a rock climber. And so, you know, we've had so much fun collecting these old cards of female athletes from all different kinds of sports. Um, I I randomly got one of these uh, Sport Kings cards from the the same set that has, you know, the the Thorpe and the Babe Ruth. This is Ed Blood, who was a skier whose Wikipedia entry is two sentences. So. Um, but I still thought it was cool and got it for like 30 bucks. I recently got a, um, a Walt Bellamy PSA eight for that set, that PSA set registry. I'm now four cards away from completing that one. And the last, well, a couple cards from, uh, the raw for the raw binder page of 61 Fleer basketball. I got the, the Len Wilkins and the Sam Jones. So I have, I have now seven of the cards for my, for my nine pocket. I have two more to go. And then the last one I'll share. You guys know I love Garbage Pail Kids. And my favorite card of all time, this is the card that made me a collector as a kid, is Atom Bomb. And I never had a really, really, really nice version. And I just recently picked up this PSA 9, perfectly centered. And it's like my lifetime copy of this card. If, if there were no values at all in collecting, this is the card that has the most sentimental value for me. So I, this is the one I've had up on my desk, and it'll probably be there for a while. And I just got a really nice sunset photo of it last night. So I'm gonna keep, I'm going to keep resisting curation <laughs> and just feed, feeding the joy with the random synapses of collection that uh, that fire away. And and yeah, hope, hopefully I've got decades more of that ahead of me. Nice, awesome stuff, Jonathan. Awesome stuff. That's it. So I'll uh, yeah, awesome epic uh, array there, man. That you really hit on um, on some uh, various themes and and that display i love it (laughs) very very cool all right so let's see so first card i'm going to show recent pickup 
so I did end up getting a 1949 Bowman Yogi. So that after I returned, you know, went through the shenanigans with the previous PSA six, um, I got this is a this is a 1949 Yogi Berra uh, PSA four with a nice yellow vintage patina uh, on the the borders there, and um, I just love this is my favorite Yogi card. And I recently watched the the documentary with my wife, and so I was really jonesing <laughs> to have a Yogi to to watch um, the show with. And um, obviously, this is his rookie. I think is considered the 48 um, Bowman card. So this is his, his second year card, but I'm just a sucker for color. And um, this one's super hard to find with with good registration. And so I was really happy after I was, you know, kind of sad to to lose the the heisted one that I had. I was really glad to replace it with this one. So so that was a recent addition. Another thing I got recently was uh, I bought a complete raw set of the 1974 Laughlin all-time Black Stars cards. And so it seems they seem to be in really good shape. I'm probably going to like just grade the whole set as I just like having, um, you know, my vintage cars graded. I think this one in high grade, the, the Josh Gibson, which is the one I'm showing now, and high grade is quite expensive. Um, we'll see how it grades out. Uh, you know, it's always tough because these cars have the the kind of darker borders. And you can see some little white on the, the corners there. But man, that looks nice. Yeah. Is it is it a little bit high? It looks really really nice. It is a little bit high. I think left right's pretty solid, um, but yeah, a little, little bit high. The satch here's the satch also looks pretty sharp. Um, this one had a little bit of corner stuff there, but I, I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna go to the Burbank show and just get just submit all of these guys. Um, it's a 36 card set. I think I got the whole thing for like. 700 bucks so it's like 20 dollars a card and for me i'm just i'm just a nut about the the negro league history so having this in a complete set um super fun um they all have these fun like um i hate fixed with font but the back of these cards has like fixed with font kind of text uh kind of courier font um but really cool stories about all the players and um Really fun to leave through this this thirty six card set. There's even Rube Foster there, sharp looking card. So it was crazy though. I like so I bought the set and the person just sent it to me like all the cards raw, just sandwiched between two pieces of cardboard, nothing wow. else. And I was like, I got the cards and I was like, oh my god, like this is crazy. Someone sent you a couple hundred dollars and this is how you. So we'll see how they grade out, but I think. They think they look pretty yeah. good. If I were to like eyeball it, I would have said like easily like kind of between like six, maybe like five and a half to to maybe seven and a half ish. Yeah, they yeah. look pretty nice. Yeah, and you you've added a few um, signed cards from that set as well recently. Right? Yeah, that's right. I've got three. I've got the page, uh, the signed one. I got that from Pat, um, who got it from Luke, and then. Um, I also have a cool Papa Bell and I have a Buck Leonard that I bought at the national last year. Nice. Yeah. Very cool. That's awesome. And, and I love that you got another 49 Bowman Yogi to come full circle on where we started yeah. tonight. Yeah. Yeah. That's like where the, so the story did have a happy ending after all. I ended up with my Yogi. I got my money back from the stolen one. All is good. Right. Awesome. All right. What do you got? I got a, Say this Cracker Jack, like when you start eating it, it's tough to stop. I, kinda... 
I've, I've been trying to stop eating it. And Matthew, you're exactly right. I haven't gotten a peanut yet. I don't know if it's just because they're all at the bottom, the bottom. or what, but, um, but yeah, I, I need to try to see if I can hunt down some peanuts in there once, once we're done. Uh, but yeah, I've actually got a, uh, a little bit of a mail day. I'm opening up here. Uh, kind of figured I would just go ahead and open it. I think it, should be a pretty easy box thing, and there's not box. Yeah, no two box. box. Yeah, once it it does open, so got the pink bubble wrap. Always nice. Oh wow! Yeah, just got this one in the other day, so I figured I'd I'd save it for tonight. So this is the 1983 tops unopened box. I, I, and you know the thing for me is I try to find some ways to appreciate the junk wax stuff. Um, you know, and I have a ton of, you know, with the raw cards that I, I, you know, opened as a kid and I love looking through those binders. And one of the other things I've done is you know, I have a, uh, uh, you know, signed collection of eighties cards. And then something I've started a little more recently is to try to, um, add some unopened boxes from the junk wax era, some of the sets that were particularly fun and important for me to collect as a kid. So um, 83 Tops was one of those, and there's some of the cards that I would hope to pull if if I ever opened this, or that we probably would pull if JG, yeah. our, our buddy, ever got close to this box. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so this is uh, another one that'll go into the junk wax unopened box, and looks like Reggie Jackson is is featured very prominently on this one. And you're such a, you're such a, you know, that's my favorite. That's my favorite set from the decade. I, that's really cool. Yeah, yeah. And hey, one other thing, um, Matthew, you mentioned going to the Burbank show. That will mark the one year anniversary of a fairly significant um, weekend and transaction for you. So. If you uh, if you do end up making it back there, man, you, you have big shoes to fill for, from last year. I'm going to try to lay low, man. <laughs> I'm still recovering. I'm still recovering from that Mickey Mantle trade. Yeah, but um, I do actually plan to probably do something a little bit similar where I might get might grab some of my cards that I think you know I'd like to upgrade or whatever and see see what shakes out. You know, oh no, what'll shake out? That's how it started like. <laughs> Cracker Jack Shoe coming home this year. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, that would be, I hope not. You never know. Yeah. So I, I think that kind of covers our, uh, our plans for tonight, fellas. Anything else before we wrap up? Yeah. Or? I wanted to say one thing. Um, so some folks in the audience know about this already, but we are planning to do a couple collector episodes where we have uh, some folks we've gotten to know and some folks who supported the show that we've invited to join to do some little interviews and share their own collector journeys and share some cards of their own. So um, look out for those. We still need to sort out the logistics, but I I'm hoping we can get that started here sometime in the month of February. Great. Looking forward to doing that one for sure. That'll be fun. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that too. And hopefully um, we can get this the the tonight's episode up on the the podcast channels um with the next couple of days here but really appreciate all the folks who joined us live in the chat for sure absolutely agreed and it was it was a great time as always fellas awesome right. good to see you guys right. this has been a production of rough cuts we'll see you next time <laughs>